Well, I know where I stand now. Sorry I got up on my hind legs, boys, but you fellas trying to rope me made me nervous. Miles getting bumped off upset me, and then you birds cracking Foxy, but it's all right now, now that I know what it's all about. Listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Hi everyone and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here and I am your host for these proceedings. It's good to talk with you again and I hope you all remain safe and healthy. And here we are at episode 20. I've got a few things to talk about before we get to this week's guest. First of all, harp jargon. I want to say thanks to everyone who sent in contributions and guess what? I have enough material that I think we can get an episode out of this but not quite enough material yet to actually fill out a show. So I need some more material. And what am I talking about? Well, for, for those of you who are still catching up, I'm collecting words and phrases used by the herp community, by field herpers, by researchers, and just everyone involved with amphibians and reptiles. And we have some very rich jargon that is unique to our special interest. And so I want to hear from you. So send me your jargon. Uh, send me the words or phrases and how they are used and who coined them, if you know. And this all sprung out of my curiosity about Hogtober. I mean, who came up with that phrase? I mean, do you know? I don't know. And you can send them to me by email using the show address, which is so much pingle at gmail.com. Or you can send me a, a DM. Uh, you can even record a video on your phone and send it to me and we can use the audio. And thanks to Rob Kreitzer of SmetLogic fame for that idea. And now you might be thinking, oh, well, I'm sure somebody else has sent this in already, but who knows? Maybe not. So send them in, put herp jargon in the subject line, and if you wish to remain anonymous, you should make that clear. Oh, and yeah, this is taking place in the fall of 2020. So if you are listening to this in the year 2175, in your flying car, no doubt, and you're catching up, up on all the episodes. It's, it's all over, buddy. I'm sorry about that. What else is going on? Um, I'm back from a string of visits to Southern Illinois, to Snake Road and other places down there. And in fact, I made three trips down there over 11 days, which is kind of nuts. I was down there for a total of eight days, and I guess I could have just stayed down there, but I had some other things going on at home. And unfortunately, it's it's not that far for, of a drive for me. And I really enjoy visiting Snake Road and Shawnee National Forest. And, and I like the camping part. And uh, most of all, these days, I just enjoy hanging out with other people who come down there. And I've met a lot of friends for the first time there at Snake Road. And I see some folks down there pretty much every year. But attendance was down this year a bit, as you might expect. Uh, but I did run into quite a few people and quite a few more than I could list here. Uh, I'll just say it was good to meet you all again for the first time and for the umpteenth time. 
But one of the people I didn't see this year was Steve Marks, our guest for this episode. And usually Steve comes down to the road every year for a Canadian Thanksgiving, and he brings a posse with him, usually a group of very interesting people, most of whom are involved in the biological sciences in one way or another. And they tend to liven things up uh, quite a bit, uh, both out in the field and around the campfire. Everybody loves the Canadians, and I sure miss their presence this year. But the borders are closed, and we will have to make do with this interview that I recorded with Steve back in early September. Now, it's a solid two-hour show, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, everyone. It's my great pleasure to be talking this morning with Mr. Steve Marks. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, thanks, Mike. It's good to hear your voice. It's actually good to see your face, too. Oh, I'm loving seeing your face, buddy. It's almost like we're just standing at the campfire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, except there'd be flames and things. So you're you're talking to us from Ontario, Canada, correct? Yeah, I'm in the very southwestern tip of the southwestern portion of our province, which means I'm south of Detroit. South of Detroit. Okay. Yeah, and pleased to have you come on the show today. Obviously, I've been on my list for some time, and uh, I thought it'd be kind of fun just to have a, a rather lengthy chat about some of the things we've talked about already over the years. Hmm. And, uh, I, of course, I want to get to some of the conservation work that you do. Oh, and great. I want to talk to you about some of your uh, traveling around the world and that kind of stuff. So. But uh, to start it all off, I think our audience, the folks that don't know you, and there's a lot of people that know Steve, but some of you may not know may not know him. And so, kind of give us an overview of how did you, where did you, where do you come from, and how did you get into this amphibian and reptiles business, so to speak? Yeah, the uh, it's it's an unusual story, I guess. I, I was terrified of snakes when I was a kid, so. I don't have the the normal typical origin story that that I hear on on your show. I was terrified, and uh, it was a high school teacher actually that that got me over that fear, or at least triggered me to purposefully get myself over that fear. You had another guest, I believe it was Jill Riles, who had purposefully gotten over the fear of snakes, and that is my story. But once I found out how misunderstood these creatures are. I was on their side from that point on. It was done. I had to defend these animals. They were getting a bad rap. So essentially, the very first thing I did after shaking my hand, uh, reaching out to a pet store owner and touching my first ever snake was uh, educating myself about them. Um, that, that high school teacher gave me a book. I still have a copy of that book. I just inhaled as much information as I could. I got a couple of pet corn snakes and started to teach people about snakes because that's what needed to happen. As far as I was concerned, th these animals were getting screwed and I had to fix that. So I was 16 years old and I was doing uh, my, my sister's, my sister, my younger sister was in high school. And so I went to her high school class with my corn snakes and I did, a, I did my first ever outreach session. And that turned into about a half million people in my in my outreach career. I did things like home shows and and sportsman shows with large displays of reptiles at city parks in Toronto. We did ten thousand people in in one weekend. 
all touching and holding the animals that we are displaying. And, and that that's amazing. My outreach career has been wonderful, and and that helped form who I was in the early years. And of course, all I wanted to do was help these critters, so I I started to volunteer wherever I could. And uh, so I, I I ended up getting after a little bit of education, I hooked up some relationships with people that that pulled me into conservation projects, and and uh, and those relationships over time just became like family. So that those kind of relationships, the the people that are involved in conservation, and the people that are involved in herbs in general. That's why it's so magical to come to a place like Snake Road and meet so many awesome herpers is because people that are into these animals, they just plug into that magic, that the magic that the animals give us. There's some sort of energy that just just bonds us all. And, and that's what you're capturing with your show. I'm loving this. <laughs> well, thanks. And and I have to I have to say there's a special place uh, in my heart for folks that go out there and do the outreach uh, work that is it's it's hard and it's exhausting but it's really important uh, oh, it because absolutely is it, it it turns away the shovels you know what I mean it keeps people from whacking snakes that don't need to be whacked oh yeah um, and and it's the thing is and, and emphasis is always placed on children and of course that is ultimately important uh, you have to educate the kids before they develop that fear of snakes and the other critters we've got. That's so important. But the thing that needs to be shoved in the face right now is that we need to educate and, 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 and win, not just educate. You need to win the hearts of, of the grownups because the grownups are the ones that are able to make change now. The kids aren't able to make change for 15 or 20 years. This is true. So, this is true. so we got to educate the adults and not just educate. It's not just about teaching them the facts that doesn't work. The, the, the guy you had on about uh, rattlesnakes in Phoenix was a great example. Marketing is a fantastic tool. You, you got to sell these, these animals to people in order to get them to care. And, and that's what we've been sort of doing here is getting people to care about nature rather than just presenting, oh, you shouldn't fear a snake because it's nice or it's not going to hurt you or whatever. That's, that's really not going to win anybody just teaching them facts. Well, I've said it before, facts, as we know, in many different arenas, facts tend to bounce off people. You know, people are, are fact resistant. They really uh, are. And it may be because there's a million facts coming at you every day, you know, within the information uh, age that we live in. And, and it's hard to just throw something at, at, at folks and have have them be receptive. And sometimes it's more the experience, right? It's the tactile experience of holding your first snake or, you know, picking up a turtle or whatever it is. It's those are the things that can open up channels into an otherwise resistant brain. When I give a corn snake or any any friendly snake to a child, and, and that child doesn't know how to hold the snake without hurting it, and yet never, ever hurts it. If you just present it to the child, they just hold that snake. It climbs all over them. And once the tongue flicks against their skin somewhere, the kid giggles, and that's it. You got them. You didn't get them. The snake got them. They love that <laughs> experience. The snake, the, they love that experience. And then 
they can carry that inside them. Yeah. And they'll never forget it. They'll never forget it. It's part of them now. Yeah. Yeah. It's powerful stuff. And, uh, and, and I'm, you've seen it thousands of times. Hundreds of thousands of times. Yeah. I've seen it hundreds of times, but you've seen it, you know, the next scale up. And so from all those experiences, you became involved in a number of conservation efforts up uh, in, uh, I guess, in Ontario province for the most part. Yeah. All over Ontario. Yeah. Okay. We've got 50 species of herbs in Ontario, which is a surprising amount of diversity for, for where we are, I suppose. But, uh, the Great Lakes are, of course, the source of that diversity. So we do have uh, a, a wonderful herp fauna, most of which uh, lives in southern Ontario. And because of basically the situation where we've got population and farms, southern Ontario is mostly gone. So most of our herps are at risk. I see. And, and what is the most critically uh, endangered herp species in Ontario? Well, that, that would be arguable, but the most most herpetologist minds would go to the blue racer, which is only found on Pelee Island. Um, so essentially, oh. there's one little island in the in the west basin of Lake Erie, and that's the only remaining population of blue racers left in Canada. So they're gone from your main your mainland. They were there ter- uh, historically. They were disappeared from the mainland in the mid '90s. I see. Yeah, early early to mid '90s, the last one was seen. And that's, of course, from uh, agricultural practices and uh, land, how the land is used and so on and so forth. Essentially, yeah. Most of the habitat in southwestern Ontario is gone. And when you say gone, you mean it's converted to residents, you know, places where people live, uh, farms? What What's happened to it? Well, if, if, if people are familiar with uh, glaciation and big flat areas being scraped by the glaciers and, and laying down the large deposits of tall grass, prairie, and oak savanna, that is what southwestern Ontario looked like. A lot of uh, uh, flat land with uh, nice sandy soils, oak savannas, and, uh, and, and tall grass prairies. So just like central Illinois for, for yourself, Mike. Yeah, uh, back in the day, and uh, and of course, just like Central Illinois, uh, that's all gone. So it's industrial farmland uh, in the southern part of our county now. It's largely greenhouse farmland. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's it's getting it's getting rather ridiculous. There's almost no wildlife left in in our part of of, of Ontario. It's it's really hard for a biologist to even talk about. But we do have a couple of little islands of habitat that we've put a lot of effort into hanging on to. And one is Point Pelee National Park, and, uh, and, and that's part of Essex County, which is the extreme southwestern part of our province. And then the other is Ojibwe, which is um, uh, actually uh, entirely surrounded by a city. And uh, so if you can imagine Central Park in New York City, uh, it's about a thousand acres. Ojibwe is about uh, 1,300 acres. The difference is it's completely fragmented by roads, whereas Central Park is entire. There is no fragmenting. It's not cut up into pieces. Ojibwe is cut up into pieces, and there's an, there's municipal roads separating all of these little pieces of habitat. So th- there's a, a a unique situation in southwestern Ontario where we've got a lot of species that are barely hanging on to islands of habitat. That's just getting pressured and pressured and pressured. It's it's a hard place to live and it's a hard place to research. But honestly, when we 
find out that a little bit of help can make a, an astounding amount of difference. Um, this project that I've just I'm just coming to the end of in in uh, in well the end of this month the uh, the, the project actually created about 24 percent extra habitat um, for the species and then on top of that uh, we created linkages uh, between portions of habitat that was completely separated before so um, it's an amazing absolutely amazing project to be a part of and and I've been a part of it since almost its inception so it's 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 been an honor wow and so you've done as much as you can with what's left uh yeah I I would say that uh that is a very accurate statement we've there's still more work to do uh there's always time for improvement there's always room for improvement is the thing uh and there is there's lots of room for improvement but but this project that I've just finished working on is the Herb Gray Parkway uh, project, which is essentially the extension of the largest highway in Canada, right adjacent to this Ojibwe habitat. And so it had the power to completely decimate Ojibwe, being a, 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 an eight-lane highway. And so what happened instead was we took it around the sides of Ojibwe, and we were actually able to take out completely useless habitat in order to make the highway project we took out completely useless habitat habitat that was not available to nature in any way we were able to convert that into nature natural habitat that was able to be used by all of the natural features of the land all of the ecological features of the land both plants and animals right up to a very protected highway so now they they don't have a way to get onto the road I see. And so we were, we were able to swell this habitat. It was incredible. And, and the, the species that you are most uh, associated with, with the project, is the fox snake, correct? There's actually two that I've been uh, um, directly related with, and that's the eastern fox snake and the butler's garter snake. Okay. Both of which are critically endangered here in Canada. Okay. And, and the fox snake was one of your... You can't really put a, a radio transmitter in a butler's garter snake, I don't think, or not yet anyway. Well, but, that, uh, that, you can do that with a fox snake, right? That's actually where you're wrong, Mike. Oh. we've uh, <clears throat> I've been radio tracking butler's garter snakes now uh, myself since 2009. And, and actually on this project, uh, radios were experimental at first from 2006 until 2009. So um, since... For uh, 11 or 12 years now, we've been radio tracking little tiny butler's garter snakes. The radios are fantastic. They're now down to about 0.7 grams for uh, the smallest internal radio uh, that I'm aware of in the world. Can actually go into a snake. Uh, a butler's garter snake is an excellent candidate to hold a radio. So um, we can kind of stretch the boundaries a little bit. Generally speaking, there's a 5% rule. Um, people don't like to put more than 5% extra body weight onto a reptile. Um, because we're dealing with 0.7 grams of a radio, I can get that into a 30-gram snake, a tiny little snake, and still well come under that 5% barrier. I, I see. I did not know this. Oh, yeah. So, and the, the Butler's garter snake is an excellent carrier of these packages. So we have no issue. This that What we do have an issue with, is the radios the, the the battery size means that there's not going to be a size limitation means there's not going to be a lot of energy to last a long time so 
So the company that makes our radios for us actually programs them to turn on and off. So we get extra length, extra battery length. And we've been able to follow these tiny little snakes for up to a full season. It's incredible. Wow. What, when, does it, uh, when does the transmitter turn off? So essentially what I've done is in a case where I'm following a male butler's garter snake, I'll turn it on for just two or three hours per day. So I can see what he's doing in a given window of time. And I'll pick a time of day when I can, I can project. Yeah, he'll probably be up basking early in the morning. I want to be able to see what he's doing. I'll, I'll, go, I'll check for that time of day. And then maybe from another portion of the season, I could, I could program it for a different time of day to see what he's doing at that time of day. You can do all kinds of things with this time programming. It's fantastic. Do you run it at night ever to see if they move uh, during the night? We did in the onset, and of course, with both of these species, they're almost strictly diurnal. Ah. In this population that we're dealing with with our fox snakes, there's next to no nighttime movement at all. I mean, other populations, there is some documented. So it's kind of unusual that ours are usually in bed by 6 o'clock, but that is the case. So when we found that out, we stopped even having the radios last through the night, and we extended the battery life by, by 50%. Yeah. Wow. Very cool. Uh, and so you also had to learn how to implant transmitters then, is that correct? Well, not at first. Um, we have a wonderful vet, Dr. Tony Braithwaite, who's, of course, uh, become a dear friend. And uh, I my smile every time I think of him. He's like a big teddy bear, but he's an excellent surgeon who's devoted so much time to the conservation of reptiles and birds career. Uh, he's just retired in 2018. And uh and so he was doing our implant surgeries for us, a phenomenal surgeon, impeccable record of implants we've done. And uh, we only have one surgical issue in all of these implants, uh, 650 plus radio implant surgeries on this massive 12-year project. And we've only had one issue in 650 surgeries. That's, that's impressive. Absolutely. And, and Tony taught me how to do the surgery. And then we in turn together taught another vet how to do the surgery. So there's always going to be someone in this area who can carry forth some conservation work because telemetry is definitely a necessary part of, of, of some of our conservation projects. Wouldn't it be cool if, if you could just capture them and put the snake in a container that had a little charging station in it like they do for cell phones, you know, like a charge pad and recharge the battery? Wouldn't that be something? Well, you know, there's probably a geek out there that can invent that right now. <laughs> see, All right. see if you can get them on the show next month. Okay. Whoever you are out there, get busy. That's it. See, I, I occasionally have a good idea. That's a fantastic idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, even having them in cars now, you put your, your phone in a certain place on the console and there's a charging, a little charging station there and it just, you know. No, no wires needed. So, well, we thought about those motion chargers where you used to shake your radio and then it, oh, it yeah. would recharge the battery. Well, what if you just set a little motion charger on the transmitter, and so every time the snake would rise through the grass, it would just enough to charge the battery. Right, but of course, it works for wristwatches. It might work for for quicker snakes, but I don't think it's going to work for maybe rectilinear motion. Might just screw <laughs> screw that right up. I don't know. Interesting. So, so you, as a course of this project and, and radio tracking butlers, garter snakes, and fox snakes, and probably uh, observing a few other species along the way, but I imagine you've learned quite a bit about the life histories of these animals and 
what what they're eating and how the little ones are getting by and that kind of thing. You want to talk about that a little bit? I'd love to, Mike. That's where I get excited. See, when 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 I'm talking to people and you can talk to them all day about how important nature is, they they just sit there and look at you like it, like they have a blank face. They just they they still don't get it until you make it about their kids, until you make it about their family. Give, it, give them something that they want from nature, and then they can they can relate to nature. Something they want is food, air, and water. Well, that, that's something they can't really get their head around, maybe. But when people develop a fear of nature, like a fear of ticks, for example, you can use that to your advantage. Protection from ticks, well, that comes from fox snakes. I can tie in how to protect your own family by encouraging a little brush pile in your backyard. Because fox snakes will come to your backyard for one reason and one reason only, and that's to eat baby mice. So yes. it turns out on this population of fox snakes that I've been working with so in-depth, like you say, I've learned more about the life history of fox snakes than I can imagine learning about any one organism. It, it's just incredible when you actually see into their lives every single day for su such a long time. And so it took quite a while for me to just to realize that if, if a fox snake isn't inside a mouse nest that he just cleaned out, he's on his way to one. They're lit on our population. They're literally nest specialists. They clean out mouse nests, digest that meal while sitting in that empty mouse nest, hiding, and then they'll go to another mouse nest, tongue flicking the entire way. So they're eating every two or three days, 10 mice at a time. More, Interesting. more mice than any, any snake I've ever heard of. And so they do that from the time they wake up in April to the time they go to bed in September or October, that they're eating rodents. And so tick control, rodent nests are tick control. That, that if you eat all those baby mice and baby rodents, that, that's, that's a whole lot of ticks being eaten. Plus, that's rodent control, which means that you don't have the diseases required to control the rodents in the first place. So it's all balance. Once you start teaching that to the kids and they start picking up on that, they're like, yeah, mom, we need fox snakes to come to our backyard and eat those mice. They get it. Right awesome. They get it right away. So it's fantastic. So these fox snakes, just they're, they're just on the move all the time, going from nest to nest to nest, using their, their olfactory sensory apparatus to locate trails and whatnot, and they just track them down. That, that's the majority of their diet is rodents. Do they eat frogs or anything like that up there? Or? Well, again, I'll, I'll just speak to my population because I know other populations, uh, there's been different findings, but in this tall grass prairie and savanna habitat that I'm talking about here, these animals are largely rodent specialists. Nest specialists, I'll go to say, because it is all about mouse nests. But when bird nest season happens in uh, you know uh, in May and, and early June, they can easily get distracted by a bird's nest and go and take that. Uh -huh. Find a fox snake fifty feet up a tree, no problem. Taking a, a cardinal nest or or a blue jay nest, I watched helplessly once as a radio track fox snake was raiding a blue blue jay nest. Up uh, a backyard tree. It was a, a non-native spruce tree, and the, the jays had, had nested in it. And so the snake was raiding the nest. 
the jays were mobbing the uh, the snake, and in addition, when they start mobbing the snake, other birds come to that effort. So there's ten or twenty birds all twittering about this snake, but the parent jays are actually hammering the snake. They're pecking at it, and the snake eventually the next day I found scavenged by a raccoon. Odds are I wasn't there to see the whole thing because I, I waited watching you know helplessly for an hour. After some time, I just walked away. But uh, but that animal was found scavenged the next day. So likely those jays successfully defended that nest. I would not want to raid a blue jay nest. I'm just going to tell you that right now. That's something I want <laughs> because, to try. No, those those things have uh, significantly lethal looking bills, and and um, you know that that's amazing to me. But I guess the payoff is if the snake can, you know. Get the, get the nestlings. That's a that's a big caloric reward, if you will. That's a it's a big payoff. Well, actually, Mike, yeah, but the, you just hit the, the risk is kind of high. You though. just hit the nail on the head. We have a distinct size difference between inland populations of fox snakes and shoreland populations of fox snakes. Oh, Shore, shoreland populations get much bigger because they have access to shoreline bird nesting, short gulls and and the and the like. Are nesting at the shoreline so when a fox snake is big enough to start capitalizing on those nests they grow an extra foot it's that simple that's a huge caloric intake of protein like you say that the inland populations don't get a chance to capitalize on so there's a difference in those two, two populations same species same county wow D- different 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 animals wow different opportunities yeah different different opportunities that's it in, in general and so the the rodent cruising for rodents as an activity is enough to you know for a fox snake to have a successful life uh but uh, the added uh, added rewards of birds means it's just something you know something else it's there's enough in the rodent world to get by on but uh being able to eat birds is a, an additional bonus oh yeah I mean, obviously, that's that's a huge, um, like you say, caloric intake, a huge resource for them. But it's it's a, it's almost like it's a distraction. They're they're literally focused on mice, and and I, I gotta say, I, I can't imagine a more efficient animal than a fox snake. And I mean, efficient in every single aspect of their life. They they stay underground as long as possible for the winter. This is the southernmost portion, uh, southernmost population of snakes in Canada. And yet the northern species, the northern populations of fox snakes and all the other species of snakes in Canada all have a longer season than my fox snakes. They got the shortest season in Canada and they're the southernmost and warmest population. It makes no sense except that it's safe to be underground in a crayfish hole, which is by the way, where they hibernate. These monster five foot snakes are hibernating in crayfish holes. Interesting. That- <laughs> are they uh, and the crayfish holes obviously are not you know a cozy, dry, underground lair. No, they're <laughs> no, they're lots of lots of ice cold water. That's in there. Not, well, it's it's the it's the temperature of the ground, whatever that is at 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 that at that time. But it's the it's the groundwater, and that that's what they're sitting in for September until April, uh, for eight months of the year. They're underground, not ever coming out to bask, not like nature signs do, where they'll come out and sun on a, on a warm day. Fox snakes don't ever even think about that. 
The second they poke their nose out, they leave that hibernacula and they move quite a distance before they'll take a basking break. Sometimes it'll only be 30 or, or 100 meters, but, but a lot of times it'll be 50 or, or sorry, 500 or, or 1,000 meters before they'll stop for a bask. They leave so, right away. So emergence isn't just coming up. Emergence is boom. I'm out of the hole and I'm, I'm moving to a new location. And as soon as I get there, I'm going to warm up and start hammering some rodents. Wow. When I eat every three wow. or four days. 10, ten of, like a whole nest at a time, where whenever they successfully find one, and there's no shortage of nests in tall grass prairie or the savannas, right up a tree, you'll find deer, deer and mice nesting inside the limbs of oak trees. And how do I know they're, they're, they're hollow limbs in oak trees? Well, because I got, I got a <laughs> signal from that hollow limb right there. I know, I know it's hollow. I, I, I yeah. recently I was at a parking lot and it's a, a brand spanking new parking lot. And underneath the parking lot is a drainage feature, you know, for all of the water that's going to be on the parking lot. They have drainage underneath it. They have to build all that for this brand new parking lot. We need access to be able to maintain those drains. So to cover up the access in the middle of this parking lot, they've got these islands of gravel with some trees growing out of it. And then so next to these gardens, they've got, they've, they've got the access to clean out the drains. Why am I bringing this up? Why am I talking about a parking lot? Well, because it's adjacent to a natural area. And one of my fox snakes is capitalizing on these, these, this gravel in the middle of the parking lot. Underneath it, there's mouse nests. How do I, how do uh -huh. I know this? Well, because my fox snake kept returning to the area. I had to unearth some of these rocks to find out what she's coming back for. I already knew. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bare naked parking lot with with rocks in it. It's a huge parking lot. She's in the middle of it. I don't even know how she got there safely, but she did. And and she's she's hammering a mouse nest in the middle of a parking lot. That's pretty amazing. Unusual situations here because we have human habitation all the way around this natural area that is Ojibwe. So it, it's a conflict. And yet these animals are doing okay. Yeah, they hang in there, don't they? They sure do. They're survivors. So the little ones fresh out of the egg, go right to work. Same thing, right? They're, they're going to go and look for mouse nests because they're going to eat the, 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 the pinky mice, the newborn mice. I assume, are there, do they have uh, other dietary preferences at that size? Uh, no, uh, they definitely want those rodents. You, you hit it right on the head. However, a hatchling fox snake, at least young of the year, we, we, do, we have not recorded this in any snake older than young of the year. So just the hatchling fox snakes will take like steriria, little little small snakes. If they can if they can't find any rodents, they'll hang they'll they'll take whatever snake they can get. And this re this reminds me of the uh and you know talking to uh, Mike Dreslick and other Massasauga researchers about uh neonate Massasaugas uh preying on neonate Eastern garter oh, snakes, yeah. same Absolutely. Yeah. So Massasaugas here, uh, the brand new neonates will take frogs, they'll take rodents, they'll take snakes, they'll take just about anything they can get. And and it's not the same with fox snakes, um, It, but they definitely will take a snake. I would imagine if there were still lizards in my population, and sadly our skink is no longer here, but if there were lizards, they'd probably take those too. I see. And so uh, a, a, couple, uh, a couple of pinkies and that snake is on its way and well, it's, it's more mind-blowing than that, Mike. So they hatch out between 7 and 11 grams. The very next week, I can't find one that's only 7 grams. 
The very next, the very yeah. next week, they're all eleven to sixteen grams. So it's amazing then that the number of successful snakes. So then the second within a week time, they're they're already eating. They're already uh, on their way, like, like right out of the gate. And then by the second week of, after hatching, and they all hatch within a few days of each other. Everything is so efficient with this species; it's kind of mind blowing. And, and it's not like this is a two year project where I've only seen this two years in a row, Mike. This is what I've seen twelve years in a row. So you know they they, they hatch out, and then we we catch them the next week, and they're like I say, they're just five or six grams bigger. Catch them the next week, and they're all five or six grams bigger again. And catch them the next week, and we're starting to see some differences. Three or four weeks in, now we're starting to see which ones are more successful and which ones aren't so successful. Uh, and there's definitely an intelligence coming into play, I think. Uh, it's just a personal observation that in fox snakes, just like in human beings, in my, my personal observation is the females are the smarter of the two sexes, and they're definitely growing faster and doing, doing better. Interesting. I like to say that humans, in human species, females are the better better equipped as far as brains are concerned. And I think that uh, in fox snake, it's the same, at least, at same least for the thing, babies. Yeah. Okay. And so how many, how many snakes you have, obviously your radio tracking subjects, but it, just for fox snakes, throw me out a number of how many unique and, and, you know, unique encounters have you had with fox snakes? In other words, have you seen 600 of them? Have you, how many have you observed? So you mean how many, how many times? Do you, how many u- unique individuals have you come across as, as part of the study? Oh, it's over a thousand. Over a thousand, yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's uh, it's 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 pretty awesome how many animals can can thrive in an environment when when it's there's so little of it hanging on, but if the but the, yeah. the environment has enough balance in it then it's thriving that the, the, the prairies in Ojibwe and, the, and some of the habitats in Point Pelee and, and some of the other habitats we have in Ontario, even though they're tiny in Southern Ontario, they're still thriving ecosystems and, and they are still full of life. Do you ever, do you ever stop and wonder about the total biomass of fox snakes before all of this habitat transition was, you know, say go back, 300 or 400 years. What was the total biomass of fox snakes in Ontario? It must have been, like uh, many other animals, it must have been staggering. Well, Essex County is not a very big county. It's one of the larger counties in, in southern Ontario. I would imagine it's a similar size county to most of yours. So when you realize that in 1900, 40% of our county was forested, and that forest was oak savanna. And, and what was left, what wasn't already farmland in 1900, was tall grass prairie or marshland. Those are the three habitats that made up Essex County. So the abundant life, if, if 50% of our county was forested in 1900, Savannah, the number of fox snakes that would have been in that, in that beautiful habitat would be staggering. And it, it, it yeah. was all fox snakes and it was all massasaugas. And where, wherever yeah. there are streams, they were queen snakes. And there's a few uh, marshes full of Blanding's turtles and spotted turtles. And there were hognose snakes on all the sand strips. And, and I'm saying were, because they're all gone. So yeah. when I say it's gone, it's all industrial farmland with no hedgerows. 
just like what you're familiar with in central Illinois. Yeah, they've they a lot of a lot of the hedgerows are gone. They t- torn them out. Yeah, so there's no which is a kind of yeah, a shame. So there's no habitat in most of our of our area now. So these islands are are that important. They're they're our only source of oxygen around here. They're the yeah. only trees we've yeah. got. Oh, yeah. So if I give Steve Marks a time machine, I know where you're going, right? What do you mean? <laughs> you're go, you're going to go back to Essex County 400 years ago just to see how things I were. Can't ev- I can't <laughs> even imagine. I can't yeah. even imagine. I mean, I, I used to think when I was a kid, when I first saw Niagara Falls, I used to think what it would be like to walk up on that natural feature and just stand in awe at the woods that were there, the forest that was there all that majesty that would have been there before we screwed it up and put concrete there and Ferris wheels. But but with Essex County, when I see, I mean, you've seen my Instagram page and my Facebook. I'm not, I'm not really big with the, the, with the wildflowers, but when I put up the wildflowers that are in tall grass prairie, people go nuts about how beautiful and rare they are. And and so I just keep pumping that up on Facebook and stuff because there there's it's such beautiful habitat. But what people don't really grasp necessarily is the fact that below those beautiful blooms is the most diverse habitat we have. There there's insect guys that say that Ojibwe is actually the most biodiverse spot in Canada, and it's it's actually a contender. For the most biodiverse spot in all of the U.S. and Canada, because of That's because amazing. of where it is, it's tucked right in the center of the Great Lakes ecosystem. The biodiversity—it's kind of like the herp biodiversity at Snake Road. The insect biodiversity of the Great Lakes is phenomenal, and and the insect guys say that Ojibwe is is it. It, it could be the number one spot. And I'm not an insect guy, so I don't know. But the thing is. We have in this little tiny city park in Ojibwe, there's an endemic insect. It's only ever been found in Ojibwe. It's never been found anywhere else in the world. How many I city see. parks can say that? <laughs> yeah. I, so it sounds like there's a concerted effort, not just, you know, by the the people who are interested in, in herbs, but the there's a lot of people interested in preserving and and uh, making sure the Ojibwe doesn't go away for many different reasons. And it, it kind of strikes me, you know, I, I don't care what what it is that saves habitat as long as the habitat is saved. It could be the, the duck people want to save waterfowl habitat or, you know, like you say, the uh, the insect people want to save the insect, whatever it, the insects, whatever it takes to get that habitat preserved. That's the important Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. And that's. Or it could be the wildflowers. People want the wildflowers. And so, you know, they, um, there's, if that's what it takes to get people to back the effort, then so be it. The beautiful thing about this project that I've just, that we're, that we're completing now is the fact that we took, instead of just looking after individual species, we took an actual ecosystem approach. So we grew the ecosystem to benefit the 16 threatened and endangered species that we were trying to protect from construction. We were on task because of a permit requirement from our government law that says you must improve the situation for each one of those 16 species. So instead of just working for each one of the species, we just improve the entire environment for them 
and they all improve by themselves. Tall grass prairie, of course, the number one missing ingredient these days is fire. Lightning causes fire, part of nature. But of course, whenever there's a fire, we come around as careful humans and put it out. So fire suppression is a huge issue. And so we burn everything as much as we can to help out the ecosystem. And that ecosystem approach is, is why this project is so successful. And honestly, without the relationships that started right from the get-go, none of this would have happened. The people, the helm of the project with our government organization, the Ministry of Transportation, there's individuals in that organization that are sadly retired now that, that stood at the head of this project and made sure everything was environmentally friendly from the get-go. And without those people and the relationships with other wonderful humans that that got involved right down to my level, everybody was was fantastic. And, and it's those relationships that built the trust that we needed to, to go ahead with coming up with the ideas and the instructions on how to do really positive work. This is great because it, it kind of ties into my last show with uh, with Priya Nanjapa, you know, about folks working behind the scenes and not just, you know, not, not the necessarily the guys out there lighting the prairie fires, but the people who organize all this stuff and make sure that it all happens in a way it needs to happen and that you, everybody involved is on the same page and you've got consensus and they've got a plan and all that stuff. So there's a lot more going on behind the scenes with these, these projects. And, and then Steve Marks with his radio transmitter, you know, I mean, which is, a, you know, obviously that's very important too, but, but there's a whole like a pyramid about people standing behind you supporting that work. And of course, they're, you know, same thing with a guy who's checking bug traps and uh, somebody who's checking rodent traps to see how the, how the rodents are doing it. There's a big, long line of people behind them. There's so many people uh, involved in the conservation for this project. I, there, there would be there would be no way to even come up with a number, let alone all the names. Like that's how many people are involved. Yeah. Uh, I'm just yeah. I'm just one guy, and and because of the nature of my job, I ended up being kind of a face for some of the project. But that, that that's not what it is. It's not about it's not about people. It's about relationships with nature, and and just the the whole notion was to educate the construction workers. So they stuck me, a very passionate individual who's done a lot of education about nature in front of every single construction worker that ever set foot on the project. That was 9,000 people in 10 years, 9,000 people I educated about the endangered species we have to protect. This was all required by law. It's not like I came up with this idea. <laughs> this, is, this is what our wonderful law came up with. You got to sit in a room from this crazy ass wildlife biologist and hear why you're going to be careful while you work. And so we, we yeah. did. And what we saw was a magnificent boost in interest not only in nature in the area, but in particular in snakes. Yeah, you get some buy-in from those folks, don't you? Uh, it was fantastic. So we have an, a wonderful nature center in Ojibwe called the Ojibwe Nature Center. It's a city-run facility run by wonderful people that know and love nature. And they run a snake day celebration every year. And, you know, it was, it was usually two or 300 people. They'd come in for two or three hours to their little snake day presentation. Well, after this, this construction site got started in, in 2011 and, and really started ramping up with large numbers of construction workers getting educated all about snakes and other natural aspects of Ojibwe, all of a sudden the attendance at Snake Day went to 900 and then 1,500 and the next, and the next wow. year it was 4,000. They had to make it a two-day wow. two event. And it's, it's all because 
people are getting excited about stuff they didn't even know we had in the town at all. Well, they're on the they're on the team, right? Your bulldozer guy is on your team. Oh, you know what's amazing, and and so now he's like, "Hey, I'm I'll bring my family down." You know what's amazing, and and, uh, and so now the fam the bulldozer guy's family is on the team too, right? Absolutely, but honestly, I, I shout out thanks, Mike, for bringing up the bulldozer guy because I got to give a shout out without giving a single name. The machine operators that are construction workers, everybody thinks they don't give a crap that they just ruin stuff with their machines. Some of those operators, I got to give a shout out to. They're the most careful human beings, very carefully operating their machines and, and saw stuff and protected it that I wouldn't have given credit to anybody to spot, let alone them. They, they're operating their machines and they're finding wildlife while they're operating on a construction site. Calling a hotline, I'm running out there and saving the wildlife. That's was pretty fantastic. amazing. The yeah. hotline system was incredible. We saved so much wildlife. That's pretty cool. And of course, as you say, this this construction land is not the good stuff. It's the set-aside land um, that you're able to use instead of, you know, doing further damage to the, the sand prairie, uh, the oak savanna habitat. Oh, absolutely. And, and not only that, but we took the, not only we took, we removed all the crappy habitat, but what we put back in its place when we were finished with the highway construction, we were able to restore and create what's maturing into tall grass prairie. We got botanical experts and, and fungi experts, people that can really help generate the natural flow of a generating ecosystem like tall grass prairie, which is a early succession ecosystem. So it's pretty easy to learn how to do something like that. We hired the best. And again, I'm not going to start mentioning names, but this project really went out to find the best people for the best job we could possibly do. And I can't speak highly enough of it. We've got where, where it was construction site, we've got tall grass prairie maturing all by itself just because Botany people knew which plants to put in the ground after we burned it a few times. What will happen in this kind of soil with this kind of plant mix? What will happen in five or 10 years? Now we're seeing the prairie mature on created habitat and our animals are using it right away. So everybody yeah. benefits. We've got endangered bird species that are aerial insectivores capitalizing on created habitat eating insects on a meadow that that spans over top of the largest highway in Canada. That's pretty cool, man. <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll see a video. I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link, to, uh, Mike, to the video that'll show you that eco passage and, and just how incredible it is. Yeah. Yeah. I know a little bit about that and I, I definitely want that for the oh, show. Yeah. Notes. It's an incredible, incredible piece of work. So for all the work you did with uh, uh, fox snakes and butler's garter snakes, tell me, Tell me the most mind-blowing thing you discovered about fox snakes. What was the thing that just kind of blew your mind about them as part of the knowledge you've gained about the, this organism? Well, um, the, the, the total efficiency is, is definitely, is definitely the, the, the thing that, that's won the species, uh, the biggest spot in my heart. Uh, someone asked me, a dear friend asked me recently, pick my favorite snake, expecting it's going to be the fox snake. Because, of course, I'm biased. I've learned enough about these animals. It would be hard to pick another species. My favorite snake is not the fox snake. But that's for separate reasons. Uh, it's, an, it's a species near and dear to your height, Mike. It's a, it's a timber rattlesnake. 
Oh, but, okay. But that that's for an entirely different set of personal reasons. Fox snakes, fox yeah. snakes are the most efficient reptile I can possibly imagine. That they they stay underground to, to bank their safety. They they wake up and they go to town eating rodents and in the most efficient manner possible, hiding inside their homes, eating all of their babies and their mama, and then going to another home, another hiding place to do more of that. And then and growing at exponential rates. In 66 days, I watched a fox snake go from 47 centimeters to 76 centimeters. In two months, it nearly doubled its length. That's incredible. It also moved an astronomical amount of distance, <laughs> far too much for that snake to have gotten on its own, and yet it clearly did, and and yet it was killed by a car. So oh, what what, what yeah. are you going to do? Um, that that's the kind of incredible animals these are. Um, they they they're so efficient. They they grow at astronomical rates and then get back down underground as quickly as possible. The single biggest thing I think, though, is sex. Absolutely, well, yeah. fox snakes are—they're like they're like, oh, they're like hippies. Okay. <laughs> they like group sex. They they like orgies, and and in fact, mm. um, I'll share with you a little story, Mike, about a Ford Mustang and Mustang Sally, a radio tracked female fox snake. I followed to a rusted out old Mustang in a field. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to ask the car owner because it's an old guy's got a whole bunch of old towed cars. He's a tow truck operator. I asked him, can I go inside that car and, and just rip it up? Because, you know, I got a fox snake in there. I'd like to see what she's doing. He says, oh, yeah. He says, as long as you don't hurt yourself, knock yourself out. Don't hurt yourself. I said, I won't hurt myself. I couldn't open the trunk because it was rusted shut. I thought she was in the trunk from the signal. So. I'm like, okay, I, I got to get inside this car. I open up the door and I'm looking inside the back seat and I could see nothing, but my signal is coming from behind the back seat. But I can't get in the trunk, it's rusted shut. I wonder if I can pull the back of the car seat out. I wonder if I can do that. These old crappy Mustangs, the ones that look like Ford Pintos back in that late 70s. That crap, yeah, remember oh, that yeah. crappy car? I pulled that back seat right out of that car. I managed to catch 17 fox snakes. Holy cow. They were in my pillowcase when I was done. I saw a whole whack more. They were all having sex. The ones that weren't involved were just watching. I never did see my radio track snake. She was in there too. Group sex is something that's really, really a phenomenon with these animals. I've seen... Orgies where they're writhing all over each other in a mating ball like you would expect an eastern garter snake to do early, early in the spring. And, and yet there's, there's satellite animals on the outside of that mating ball, too. Everybody's interested. And the pheromones can be had from a kilometer away. That male will go and find that female from a kilometer away. So the one thing that you asked me to say was what's the most astounding thing I think I've known for fox snakes is that at a certain time of year, they forget all about the mice at a certain time of year for about 10 days. It's all about sex. And that male tongue flicking like crazy doesn't think about mice for 10 days. Doesn't think about birds for 10 days. He thinks about sex and nothing but 
and that's and it's on. And I've seen movements of up to two and a half kilometers crossing roads just to get to a female they smelled from back there. That linear movement is forceful. And I've seen it dozens of times. It's not like I've seen it once or twice in a short two-year study. But what I never expected to see was what I got this year from my beloved snake buddy, the one long-term surviving fox snake that lasted almost the full length of this project. 11 full years, I radio tracked Buddy the Fox Snake. He got a a name for our 10th anniversary together because I'm not the kind of guy that names snakes. I name snakes when there's a child involved. If If I found the fox snake in the kid's backyard or the fox snake leads me to a kid's backyard and I got to win the family, then I'll use the kid's name to name the fox snake and we can follow that fox snake around together. I like doing that kind of stuff. But this one fox snake did something, buddy, did something I've never seen in any other animals. He stuck with a female for over 700 meters of movement over five days, zigzagging through different kinds of habitat. I found them together for five days in a row. That's never happened. Not in all the tracking I've done for these animals. So clearly they've got a relationship, one that I don't understand. Hmm. So it's just not a matter of um, following a female, attempting uh, mating or attempting to mate. And then uh, when the fit's over, you know, go back to, I mean, you know, as soon as they're done, they're done. So obviously this male is hanging around with the female after long after uh, uh, opportunities for copulation have, have come and gone. Is that what you're saying? During the five days, I saw multiple copulation events, not just from that male, but from other males as well. And uh, there were a couple of orgies, not not big ones, mind you, with seven or ten or more, but just three and four snakes. And then, uh, but a lot of times it was just the two of them at rest and they would just be there together. Because, of course, I, I would track them extra times during the day, but I can't be there following them throughout the entire day. I have to come I have to come and right. sneak in and see what they're doing without disturbing them because of course I don't want to spook them off and screw up whatever behaviors might happen if I hadn't have spooked them. These are all important things to do when you're tracking. Make sure that you don't spook the animal so you can record natural behaviors rather than behaviors that you've caused as a predator. Yeah. Gotcha. A lot of sneaking oh, yeah. around. Oh, and that's another thing. People like to collect fox snakes. So I actually have to watch my back. I've I've noticed people staring at me from from down the trail while I'm tracking a fox snake, and I'll I'll make a note, I'll move away, and then ten minutes later that person is looking for my fox snake because everybody around here knows who I am now. They've seen me tracking snakes out on a landscape for a long time, wearing a bright orange vest, and so they know it's Steve the Snake Guy. It's kind of like so much Pingo. My my local <laughs> brand is Steve the Snake Guy. And, and so everybody knows who I am. And so what I'm doing over there, they'll, well, that's cool. Maybe we can see that fox snake and, and they'll come running over. And that's not generally a problem unless they want to collect that animal. I've uh-huh. had a fox snake collected. It was actually taken. It was basking on a bush. I tracked it. I saw that it was basking on a bush. I took all my data and I walked away. Unknown to me, I had been watched. The guy went over and he caught that snake off that bush, bagged it up. In whatever bag he had on him and took it home. How did I find that animal? 
I got a random phone call five days later from the Humane Society. They had found a snake crawling down an apartment hallway, and they didn't know what it was. Could I identify it? It was one of my radioed fox snakes. Five days prior, this poaching event had happened. The snake had been obviously put into somebody's aquarium on the seventh floor of an apartment building 20 kilometers away. Wow. It had escaped from that tank, was crawling, it, it scooped under the door and was crawling down the, high, the, the hallway when an innocent bystander freaked out because there's a massive snake coming down the hallway in the middle of a city, seven floors high. So he calls the Humane Society. And by some miracle of events, I get my radio track snake back. And that was, that was one of the wow. females that Buddy used to meet up with every year. Wow. Yeah. And so you put her right back around the bush area. I put her right back on her bush. And I followed her around for another two or three years before she was killed by a raccoon. Oh, wow. It is wow. important to note that I've tracked about, well, I, I know it's more than 100. I haven't done the actual numbers to find out how many individuals I've actually radio tracked. But I know it's probably in the area of 100. And I've radio tracked them all to their death. And what, except her buddy and, and the, the others that didn't die, that I actually let go at the end of this project without a radio inside them. There were nine animals. So Buddy and eight others. All the, all the other... Yeah, so I think recently I remember you posting about taking the transmitter out of Buddy and and letting him uh, go out, out into the world. Yeah, and uh, that was a, a very emotional time for me as a researcher because I had developed a relationship with this animal. I'd, I hadn't even realized that at the time, that it was becoming a relationship. Uh, because I'm looking into his life every single day. And when I, when I counted up the number of days that I'd actually radio tracked that one individual fox snake, it was over 1,400, 1,400 observations of that animal. To be privileged enough to go and look into the secret life of a wild animal 1,400 times in a row over 10 years, actually 11, 11 full yeah. years, it turns out that I talked to Harry Green and there's only one other snake we can find that's been tracked longer than 11 years. And that was one of Harry Green's black-tail rattlesnakes. Oh, wow. He was, he was tracked for 12 years, but he wasn't tracked 1,400 times. He was tracked something along the lines of 500 times. So, oh, still very impressive, impressive, but yes. <laughs> but he is likely the most radio-tracked snake in history. And, and the thing about Buddy that I'm so grateful for is the relationships that he helped me build with families that now care about fox snakes. And Buddy. And they, Buddy in, in particular, yeah. starts out, they care about Buddy because they have, you've introduced them, and they have an emotional attachment to one, and then it just sort of becomes a, uh, an overall familiarity and attachment to just snakes in general, thanks to Buddy. Absolutely. And, and I've actually just... Um, Here's some important, some exciting news, at least personally exciting. I just finished a, a, something that's been inside me for a long time, and I didn't know if it would ever get out. And I, it looks like I'm going to get it out. I've just finished the kid's book. And, uh, and it's got Buddy in it. Um, I, 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 I tried to immortalize Buddy. And that idea came from someone that just kind of recommended me that maybe Buddy is worthy of being immortalized. And I thought, wow, that is a nice idea. So I included Buddy in my kid's book. 
and I'm hoping to get it published soon. Something I'm going to talk to you about, Mike, because I know that you've published two books. I have both of them. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so I, I will actually be talking to you about more about that. But Okay. Yeah, I'm excited to hear uh, how this goes. And, uh, of course, um, we'll, be, we'll be happy to support that on the show. Oh, thanks, bud. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to, to look into the lives of wild animals the way that I have been. And in, in, in this career, and in particular in this project, but the work I did with spotted turtles for all of those years, I got to look into their lives too. Yeah, one we didn't even most, talk about that. that oh no, one of the most—that's a volunteer thing, right? Totally, one of the most incredible experiences for that project. I can just touch on really briefly: uh, catching a, a hatchling, a fresh hatchling spotted turtle, and taking some uh, cuticle scissors. And very carefully marking a notch in the in marginal scutes of these little hatchling turtles, and eight years later finding that animal and man managing to identify it from the markings that you gave it as a hatchling, and to say that in my population that has happened multiple times in the magnitude of twenty five now, we've managed to find these little baby hatchlings surviving and thriving in this ecosystem. You can hear my smile in my voice because. Uh -huh. The volunteer effort has actually led to real protection for the population. The, the landowner is investing money and time and effort into real conservation of that spotted turtle population. And on top of that is real research with real science. Fantastic master's projects have come out of this population, two of them so far. I'll name drop Dr. Jackie Litskis because she's a, she's a goddess when it comes to spotted turtles. She oh, I met her, uh, was it last year or the year before? You did. came to Snake Road, You right? did. You had the honor, Mike, and she yeah. in turn had the honor of meeting you. And <laughs> um, that uh, it's all about relationships, and it really is in this game. And that woman is a wonderful shining star in the relationships of conservation around the world. She's pumping out more rock star herpetologists than any other herpetologist I know she's a phenomenal person doing so much on so many levels for nature. It's incredible. So I, I it's just made me realize I need to back up for a second. I, I'm, Cause I'm interested in, obviously I'm interested in spotted turtles, but just for a second to go back to the, the, the Ojibwe project. Mm. What about all that data? What's, what's going to come out of, I mean, obviously the data is used. All the data you've collected is used for the conservation project, but, there has to be something else coming out of that data, right? There, are there some research papers uh, oh, connected with that? Can you tell me more about that? Absolutely. I, I can't really talk to most of it because um, I, I'm not going to be involved with the writing of any of those papers. The thing is, it's all my data and all of the information. I've, I've, it's not my personal data. It's all The data is all owned by the provincial government. Sure. And so the, the permit requirement for the project is to, to publish all of the findings that we have. The entire the uniqueness of this project is the long-term monitoring before the entire protection and monitoring that went on during the construction project, which took over five years to complete, and then a five-year post-construction monitoring program, which has gone on, happened, and is going to be closing up after this year. And that's just for the snakes. The plant monitoring pro portion of this program goes on for 10 more years. So that is because the plants govern the habitat. And the habitat is, of course, the, the number one 
aspect of protection. We need that habitat. So putting the extra investment and time into the habitat restoration is is the best thing to do. And that's what we did with this permit. Okay. All right. Very good. And the spotted turtle thing is uh, something you just got involved with. And a number of people have just been uh, helping out with this because they're they're also in trouble up there. So, yeah. Spotted turtles have been near and dear to my heart since 1992. That's the first time I ever caught one as part of the the project that I that I started up, and uh, it was a 100% volunteer effort. So I'm I'm very proud of that fact. The fact that I got dozens of individuals, uh, people, to come out and and help uh, unearth the secrets of spotted turtles uh, in this in this little spot that's barely hanging on, and and because of it. Uh, real protection has has evolved. The, the population is secure, and it's a, a sizable population. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity because the, again, relationships with spe- special individuals are enabling kids to get more knowledge out of these turtles and then spread that to other scientists. We're now learning about family relationships. We're learning about uh, individuals that may recognize each other over long periods of time. We're, we're now recognizing that turtles in the egg actually communicate with each other vocally before they hatch. We're, we're learning stuff about turtles we couldn't ever dream was possible. And so now is a really, really exciting time to be doing turtle research of any kind. Because starting over, like I went to the World Congress of Herpetology in New Zealand in 2020, thankfully, right before COVID hit. And right. it was an eye opening experience. A researcher there at pres- presenting at this conference placed a microphone into a clutch of turtle eggs incubating under the ground. And, and you could hear the sound of the turtles talking to each other. We didn't know that happened until two years ago. <laughs> That's, uh, that's amazing. It's absolutely incredible. We're finding out things about reptiles we had no idea about. And one thing that is shocking to me, and this is as, it, it personally astounding to me, I've spent my entire career talking to kids and other people, holding snakes, getting them to touch the snakes, telling them all about how, you know, snakes don't really do hate or they don't even really do like. Their brains are very simple. They probably don't do the same kinds of emotions that we have. They think in different ways, probably a lot more simple. And, and maybe, maybe they don't have any emotions at all. These are the kinds of things I would tell people for years, Mike. I regret every scrap of that <laughs> crap that I spewed. Because why on earth would scientists any amount of time whatsoever discredit reptiles with being more social than insects, which is clearly a, an extraordinarily social group of animals. We've looked at reptiles all these years and said, well, yeah, they don't have relationships like brothers and sisters or friends or anything like that. They're just reptiles. Why didn't we ever look at them as being social creatures? They clearly are. And that science is being proven in tons of different ways. That- yeah, you, you are not the first person that I've talked to about the 
apparent chumminess of snakes. No. So they they have preferences and who they hang out with. Absolutely. Uh, and, and how they react to things like, you know, physical contact. Absolutely. So when I when I brought that knowledge home from that conference, I've been radio tracking these same individuals all this time. But because I've got this new information in my head, a new outlook to look at the animals with, it gave me a whole new approach. I started to look at the animals as 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 sentient beings more so than ever before. Of course, I also, I always thought of fox snakes and all other reptiles as sentient beings. I'm not I'm not trying to say that I never did, but but more sentient, I guess is the way the way to say it, more cognizant of what they might actually be feeling. And it opened up a whole new understanding of of everything about them for me. I yeah. started to see them in an entirely different light. And they definitely do have relationships. There's there's absolutely no doubt about it. There's no doubt in my mind that Buddy the Fox Snake recognized me on some level. I'm not going to say he liked me. Not by any means. We touched each other maybe 30 times in the entire time I knew him in 11 years. That's it. That includes all the surgeries to replace the radios. I touched him perhaps 30 times in 11 years. We didn't have a physical relationship or anything, but we had a relationship on some level. He recognized that I wasn't a threat. He recognized that when I brought another person with me, that he had to be more careful. There's two. Uh Uh-oh. He'd hide a little extra than when it was just me. And I recognized that just by being careful about observing it only because I went to New Zealand and I listened to a whole bunch of information about the fact that, hey, these animals are more social than we give them credit for. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're not, you know, they're not thinking the way we think about the things that we think about, obviously, but they they definitely use all of their sensors, all their sensory apparatus in in ways that if, you know, if you're crawling around on the ground, you would be using this, the same thing. Um, you know, it's it's uh, they're not just a a primitive bundle of nerve fibers that are programmed to eat, even though that that seems like your fox snakes are really good at that. That's not all that's going on with those snakes or well, no, any other snake. You know? Not at all. The, the analogy I like to use is the basking garter snake with the leopard frog on top of him. He's not, <laughs> if the garter snake isn't hungry, then they just get along. That, that garter snake never attacks the leopard frog. The, the leopard frog never flips off the garter snake. They just get along. They hang out for a little while, and then they move on. Isn't that what we should all be doing? <laughs> so I kind of I take a whole new outlook on my relationships with people just by watching how animals react to each other. And it puts me in a more calm state of mind to do things like Facebook <laughs> and, <laughs> and Twitter, where I've got to go into you know, treacherous waters where social interactions are concerned. Yeah. And I'm in a better state of mind just because I got to watch a natural interaction that was gentle and wonderful. It puts me in a better state of mind. I get to learn from that. Yeah. That's the analogy I like to, 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 to highlight to people that don't understand that snakes are that, they're not that different from us. They're really not. And they're just animals, just like we are. 
course, people forget we're animals. Uh, yeah, I hear that occasionally. That's a we're whole not other, animals. Yeah, that's a whole <laughs> yeah. other discussion. Yeah, that's one for the campfire. Oh, speaking of which, I mean, we should probably talk about that a little bit. Uh, you and I met because you come down uh, out of your northern lair to Snake Road every October. And uh, we, we first met there. And it's sort of become a, a ritual, if you will. Uh, you guys come down for uh, during Canadian Thanksgiving, the weekend of. And traditionally, and you spend your Thanksgiving in uh, at Snake Road. I can't yeah. think of a better place to spend Thanksgiving. <laughs> and you typically bring a bunch of Canadians down that are involved in the sciences. They may not be herpetologists, or uh, but they they have some sort of connections to the to biology. You bring a lot of grad students with you, and, uh, and people like um, I can't think of her last name. We just talked about her. The spotted turtle researcher. Uh, Dr. Liskus. Liskus, that's right. I, I have a hard time remembering that name. But uh, you, you bring people like that down with you, and uh, it's it's kind of fun. And oh, uh, one of the – when you first – when I first ran into you and your cohort, one of the interesting things is I noticed is that you guys just don't waste any time. Uh, you're much like the fox snakes that you study. You have a very short herping season up in Canada, so when you come down to the United States, you make the most of it. You guys are just tearing up the the place. You're just out and go 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 and and uh, marching around the place. And I'm just kind of strolling around, you know, because that's kind of how I do. But uh, it was just amazing to see how much energy you guys put into your your um, herping and hiking and enjoying nature down there. Well, I'm not going to say that every single Canadian is as gung-ho as I am or as gung-ho as the group that I've brought down. But I like to think that the people that I bring down to Snake Road are coming because we've planted a seed of how exciting that place is. Not just the place, but the people that go there. My my favorite thing about Snake Road, I, I, I feel at peace whenever I'm in nature. It doesn't really matter where I am. Right now I'm in my apartment. I'm not at peace. I need to be in nature to be at peace. That is who I am. It's always been who I am. This is my first time in my adult life that I've had to live in a town and I live in a city. It's a very uncomfortable place for a guy like me. I like to be in green. And so oh, I forgot my point. Oh, well, you like coming down the snake road and and just enjoying the the beauty of the place. So I'm in the green. I'm in the. I'm in that lovely place that is Snake Road, but I'm in nature just to be comfortable anyway. The magical ingredient for Snake Road about me is all the people that come down and up and from east and west. They're coming from all over the place, and they're all coming for one or two reasons: to see the wildlife and to talk to people that are excited about wildlife. Yeah, that's the magic that Snake Road, and you're yeah. you're the biggest part of that magic, Mike. <laughs> well, thanks for that. I I've been coming down there for a long time, uh, and it just it you know really kind of started as a solitary thing that I would do, uh, but uh, uh, and I haven't missed a year in twenty twenty six years now. Uh, it, it's funny. It, it now it's this big social event in that people like to come down and hang out and, and learn and get to know other people 
it's great to see all the animals. Don't get me wrong. And I, I still get a kick out of that. But just the idea that you can come down and be with other people who are of like mind. They don't necessarily have to be uh, hurt people even. There's just there's bird watchers and there's just people who enjoy being outdoors. And, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll take any kind of nature lover down there. We won't, we'll, you know, they can be part of the process. And and that that is was an unexpected bonus to me. I You know, I didn't see that developing <clears throat> right away. I did, at first, I didn't really see that as a, as a thing. But now, of course, I recognize that as that is a big element of it. It's not just uh, the fact that you can come down and see a hundred cotton mouse on a sunny afternoon. You can also hang around and uh, sit around a campfire at night and talk about it and get to know people. And honestly, I, I can't think of a more beautiful place to get to know more beautiful people. Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The people that come to the road are as beautiful as the place itself. I, that's the best thing I can say because everybody is there, like you say, because they love the animals, because they love nature, because they love whatever it is they're coming to Snake Road for. So everybody's there to put love in and get love out. And that's all it is, is positive energy. So you, you walk into this campfire up there at LaRue Pine Hills Campground, and you, you stroll up to a guy named Mike, and he, he, he hands you the shovel, and, <laughs> and it's your turn to talk. And you introduce yourself, and you say your origin story. And that magic that happens at that campfire, magic's the only word I can use, because the magic from the day gets all shared at the campfire. And as soon as there's a little more, a little more imbibement of whatever imbibing you're doing, there's more magic. You're sharing what you do at home. You're sharing why you care about this in the first place. You're, you're, you're sharing everything. It's, there's no other word to put than magic. It's a magical experience. I can't think of a better place to spend Thanksgiving. It's my most thankful place. Cool, cool. So that's why I come to Snake Road. We should probably talk about that the shovel thing for a minute. We the, the concept of the, the shovel is just basically a talking stick. And whoever holds the talking stick does the talking because usually uh, if you've got 20 people around a campfire, you get uh, a, lot, a lot of uh, small cluster conversations. So the idea is to let one person talk and say whatever it is they want to say, why they're there, who they're from, you know, where they're from, that kind of thing. And uh, that way uh, everybody gets to to hear and has a turn to 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 do that and so we we didn't have a, a stick that was of any use so I, uh, I think justin michaels brought a sh had a shovel down there and so now every every year he brings the shovel down and that's the the talking stick that we use so uh <laughs> and I, I don't remember how that got started but it was one of those moments uh, and of course the talking stick concept is not new that's a, a pretty old concept for uh, gathering pe gatherings of people probably goes back, you know, thousands of years as far as I know. But that's that's one of the fun parts of the of the whole experience is, uh, and and I've met so many so many of my friends uh, in in the world of herbs have sprung from Snake Road. I've met so many people at that place for the first time. Oh, of and then we we go on from there, including yourself. So. Of course. I have to give a, a quick shout out to Josh and Dav and Wayne, who introduced me to Snake Road in 2008. Because if it wasn't for those three people inviting me on their trip, 
I wouldn't have even discovered the place. I mean, I'd heard of Snake Road. I had an idea of what it was. But for those of you that have never been, honestly, you don't have a clue. I've been there every year since 2008, and it's never been the same once. Not once. Some years you go and you're tripping over cottonmouths till you're sick of counting them. I lost count one year at 400. I was only there for two days. 400 cottonmouths. I lost count. I said, I'm not counting cottonmouths anymore. Forget it. You can't do that in too many places. You certainly can't do that in Canada. So, but then you come another year and it's timber rattlesnakes. I remember standing in one spot. Now tell me if anybody has ever done this. One spot, I counted 38 timber rattlesnakes. They were all babies. That's pretty amazing, even for Snake Road. <laughs> Absolutely. And I've, I've shared with you where that spot is, and you know where that spot is. But, but you're the only person I've shared that with, you and one other person. We keep that information to ourselves. We protect Snake Road. Herpers protect the magic. Good herpers <laughs> protect the magic. I love your, your mantra, hurt better. <laughs> yeah or herping better means keeping secrets where you need to keep secrets. <laughs> yeah well that place is protected pretty well uh, i mean it has it's a what's it's what's called an a research natural area and normally you don't get a trump all over a research natural area no you don't uh, so it's kind of unique and you know a number of years ago they put in rules that prohibit uh snake hooks or any kind of collecting material or collecting vessel, like a snake bag or snake tongs, you can't bring those things down there and and be, and go to Snake Road with those things. They're they're banned uh, because that you know that makes it easy to spot the people who are trying to you know poach pit vipers down there and other other uh, critters. And as a result, the you know the populations of timber rattlesnakes and copperheads and and of course cotton mouse is is very good down there and. The other thing is, there's so many people like yourself and 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 me and, and many others and people you know like that come down every year. Uh, we fiercely protect that. If we see somebody doing something wrong, usually something gets said to them, and if they don't uh, respond in a positive, affirmative manner, oh, then we we've got. A law enforcement on speed dial and you know we'll make a call and we'll somebody will get a big ticket so you know we're not going to mess around we're not going to uh we're not going to turn the other turn away from people doing doing things they shouldn't do there so and folks have gotten substantial tickets down there as a result of the uh, number of herpers who just keep an eye out for that kind of stuff we don't want people coming down there and messing around we want people to come down there and enjoy it well, absolutely. And and the thing is, uh, over the years, I've brought many people down from Canada uh, who have absolutely loved every aspect of the experience from the time they got in the car to drive 12 or 14 hours till the time they got out of the car exhausted at home. After the long drive home, they've had a magical experience. And again, magic is the only word I can bring because I honestly don't know another way to say it. The people and the animals and the habitat, that just that swampland, you don't get that. There's another place not too far from Snake Road, Heron Pond, and we love to go over there as well. It's the next county over. 
a whole other set of herbs, more diversity. So many secrets in the southern tip of Illinois. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, so many secrets in wonderful little spots hidden away all over the world. And that's another thing we haven't touched on, Mike, yet. No, it's a good segue to other places you have been, uh, including Australia, which I'm very jealous. Well, Australia was, honestly, it's the single best thing I've ever done. I, that's the one thing I, I, I'm so happy I did. If, if there's anything I look back at and say, there's one single thing I did is the best thing I've done. It's my trip to Australia. It helped me grow as a herpetologist. It helped me grow as a person. I got experiences in Australia with dear friends that I wouldn't have got if I didn't go. And I had an absolutely eye-opening, mind-blowing time traversing across 11,000 kilometers of that wonderful country. Wow. And, uh, and, and, and seeing wildlife forms that I'd only dreamed of. I mean, watching Steve Irwin muck with these animals is one thing. I never dreamed I'd see a wild bearded dragon. Not ever. We caught one. It was incredible. <laughs> and and that's another that's another point. It, it was it was not that long ago. I was in Costa Rica. I'm I'm gonna say it was 2003. I was in Costa Rica, and you you've got a special spot for the for the tropics, and and. Boa constrictors, in particular, they're they're amazing animals. And my first ever pet snake—I'm using air quotes because I don't believe in keeping pet snakes necessarily. My my first ever captive snake was a boa constrictor named George T. Boa, and I had boa constrictors in my collection. I, I kept reptiles for thirty four years, and in those years, I kept all kinds of different herbs, amphibians and reptiles. But, but once I caught a boa constrictor in, in 2003 in Costa Rica, I never, ever wanted to keep another boa constrictor. Once I found where I'd caught him, her actually, I'm like, there's no way I can do this. Uh. I can't create this. This animal wanders freely all over this forest. I can't create this. I feel guilty for putting it in a box. So I decided right then and there, I would not keep boa constrictors anymore. For the remaining 20 years of my herb keeping career, I didn't. But I kept all the other herbs with a free conscience. That struck me as kind of odd. So I looked at how I keep herbs a lot more critically in my later years, making sure they were extra happy and not feeling like a prisoner. I learned of an annulated boa at a research station that I'd visited in Costa Rica. And that annulated boa got caught seven times over uh, three years or four years. It was always caught in the same tree. It was always at a different level in the tree. And it was observed at different times of the year up and down the column of that single tree. It was, it was hypothesized that that animal may never leave that tree. There are sedentary reptiles that are wonderfully suited for captive environments. But when you've got a wanderer, that's just cruel. And I learned that the hard way. I started to look at how I look at reptiles more critically. And then I became a better reptile keeper. 
And yeah. that made me yeah. that made me really happy when I first heard my first ever so much pingle pingle podcast. <laughs> when you closed it off by saying herp better, I think that means all aspects of herping, including herpeticulture. We should strive in all areas of life to do everything better. That's what evolution is. So herping better means in a cage too. I'm not saying boa constrictor keeping is wrong. Not not in a second. Not for a second. I'm saying it's wrong for me. I'm not placing judgment on anybody. I'm trying to encourage everybody to think outside the box and do better for your herps. Hurt better is a mantra we should all live by. And I think I thank <laughs> so much Pingle for that. Well, thank you for that. It's it's one of those flippant things that I I started saying in the field, you know, people would say, Oh, I didn't get anything. I got skunked on this or blah, blah, blah. And I would just say, why don't you just hurt better? <laughs> and, you know, just to, you know, cause I don't want to hear anybody belly aching about some thing that didn't happen the way they wanted it to happen. But, uh, so you've taken what I use as a flippant remark and you turned it into something much deeper. <laughs> so I, I thank you for that. Mike, I, I um, think a lot of the things that come out of that bearded mouth of yours, <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of them are, are deeper than you think they might be. So uh, I think that's why you've naturally ended up in the spot that you are, host of a podcast that is opening up all kinds of minds. That you're Well, I, you, I wonder how I got here. You're yeah. a force to be reckoned <laughs> with, buddy. Uh, well, I share your your um, appreciation for boas. Absolutely, I know you did. They're 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 so amazing. And when you, I agree. When you first when you get a, a wild one, the first one you see in the wild, um, it's an amazing experience. And you realize that these things are yeah they're they're hard to keep in a box. They're uh, and and they taught the, the I guess the amazing thing about a boa constrictor in captivity is they. They tolerate boxes, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they're, they just, they abide in captivity and they seem to do well. Uh, but boy, that's not their life. That's not their life in the forest. You know, they're, no, they're cruising around, they're climbing trees or, you know, they're, um, in fact, uh, one of the first ones I ever saw was in a, about five foot off the ground in a small tree, uh, about a, about a, about a two and a half foot boa constrictor. And so you quickly realize they're, they're, they're just not quietly coiled up in the forest somewhere. So no, not the case. No. And, and once you start um, exposing yourself to something like radio telemetry, where you're watching individuals make massive movements, it, it, you start to think of, from the animal's perspective more than, more than you ever could before. So it, it kind of opens your eyes and, it, it could put you in a position where I, I spent a lot of time with the Ontario Herpetological Society, which unfortunately the internet and the way the internet forums started up, a lot of the smaller herp societies just closed their doors. Um, and the, right, Ontario, the Ontario right. Herp Society was one of those. It was a multifaceted organization, much like a tiny version of the IHS today. Um, we involved everybody at whatever aspect of herpetology they were involved in. And it was a wonderful organization. And I was the president of that club for about eight or 10 years. And I was on the board for 12 or 13 years. So I had a lot of involvement with that her, her club. And damn it, I skipped my brain and I don't know what I was going to say about it. <laughs> Just totally derailed, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that's okay because we've been talking for an hour and a half. So, uh, well, let me let me steer this back in. How long how long did you spend in Australia when you went mm. there? Yeah, the traveling. Um, I was in Australia. We sandwiched it into a a fourteen day experience. I was from from Canada to Canada. Front to back, I was gone for 15 and a half days. I was actually in Australia because of the flight times. I was actually in Australia for 12 point something days. And in that time, we we put an 11 day road trip. So we only spent one day in Sydney where they lived. My friends I was visiting are are, uh, James Baxter Gilbert and Julia Riley. They currently live in Cape Town, South Africa. Um, But they were living and doing research in Australia at the time. And so we were going to go to their their field sites and, and, and check them out. And while we were doing that, we were going to take a road trip across the entire country. Well, at least a, a good portion of the country. We did 11,000 kilometers in, uh, in, in 12 days. And, uh, and we saw 70 different species of herbs, uh, 70 different kinds of birds, uh, about 20 different kinds of mammals, including every single species of wallaby and roo that we could see, including the most endangered in South Australia. Uh, the one of the rock wallaby species was not expected to be seen, and we saw one. It was absolutely incredible. The pinnacle was right in the middle, though. Once we got to that 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 sacred land that is Uluru and Ayers Rock and and all, oh, all yeah. of the center of Australia, that that magical outback, we had an incredible forty-five minute encounter with the world's most venomous snake, and that was oh a taipan an inland taipan sighting uh spotted by julia as we drove past it after nine hours of road cruising a road (laughs) specifically nine hours of road cruising a road because we know taipans are there nine hours of road cruising that road before we finally spotted one and we did and we spent 45 minutes with that beautiful animal and he didn't give a rip that we were there not not a care in the world not a care in the world. All he did was go about his business foraging for long-haired rats. It was the most peaceful, rewarding, misty, if you catch my drift, moment I've ever had with a reptile. Because he had put so much effort into getting to that pinnacle point, it was an overwhelming experience. But, but that animal, there's something about Oxyurinus, Microlepidotus. It's it's an incredibly misunderstood animal, and that's what the whole gist of my kids' book is: is the fact that these animals, just like so many people, are misunderstood. All we got to do is understand them a little better. We've got a lot more in common with them than we think. Yeah. What did what was it about the taipan that that opened your eye? You had an assumption about the animal, and and what changed? Well, nothing really changed. I went there knowing that if I was lucky enough to encounter one, it would probably be just like Steve Irwin taught me. Not fierce, even though they're called the fierce snake. It's totally not fierce. The entire forty-five minute encounter we had with this animal, all it did nonstop was foraged in little tiny holes in the dirt for rats. There's only one placental mammal in Australia, native, and that's this long-haired rat. That's the only thing these taipans eat. So 
If they only eat rats, why on earth do they have enough venom on them at any given time to kill 250 rats? That's a, that's good a darn good question. That's essentially way overkill. Why do you have that? And so highly toxic snakes, usually, you'd think, okay, well, that's, that's so the prey doesn't get away. Like in the case of a, of a sea snake, you want to bite the fish and then the fish doesn't manage to get away. It paralyzes it instantly. Well, that's not the case in the outback. A rat can't go anywhere. There's nowhere to hide. There's no vegetation. The habitat we were looking in, in for it, uh, this snake in was, was the most desolate I've ever seen. It, was, it looked like concrete. It was just dirt with no vegetation in, in most of it. So it was an arid, barren habitat with no hiding places. And yet, here's this four-foot snake just cruising around in the open. Why does huh. it have this? highly highly toxic venom well it might be for defense like there's eagles that fly around the outback maybe a bird swooping down if you can get a bite into him that pain will stop the predatory event well that's not it because their venom doesn't hurt it's paralysis so that doesn't help a predatory event so what's the advantage to having this large quantity of venom for this little snake. I don't know what the advantage is. I don't know if science has figured that out yet. There's got to be one. There's got to be an advantage. Otherwise, it wouldn't have it. Interesting. And you got to spend some, sounds like you spent some time with this snake or observing the snake as it went about its daily business. 45 minutes. We we, we didn't. I wanted to touch it, Mike. There's no, I, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Uh, I wanted to, to let him slide over my hand because I knew Nothing would happen. This animal didn't give a rip that we were there. There's, there's nothing wrong with adding this snake to my poke list. But Julia, a beloved friend of mine, had asked me specifically, please don't do anything stupid. And so I said, you know what? I'm not going to do anything stupid. I'm just going to enjoy this from a nice, safe distance. And that was a smart thing to do. I still regret it. But it was, it was, it was a smart <laughs> thing to do. We didn't muck with the animal. We loved it from a nice safe distance we just watched it and observed it as it foraged i took video as it foraged in the holes for the rats i i made little documentary clips as it just moved around the environment not given a rip that we were there at all it was fantastic so i think you sent me one of those clips i'm, I'm sure i did back I'm in the sure, day i'm sure i did <laughs> When the when the excitement was, it was new, a fantastic experience, yeah. and to share it with people that you you love like family was incredible. It was it was James and Julia and Sean with me that day, and it was Julia that spotted it. We wouldn't have found it if it wasn't for her keen eye. Imagine spotting it as you're driving down a road and you see it at five o'clock. It's behind you. That's how Julia spotted yeah. the snake on this arid habitat, this barren habitat wow. at five o'clock as we drove past it, right behind us. If you get meaning. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Uh, so you'd like to go back, I take it? Oh, I'd love the opportunity. I don't know that that'll happen. But but uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand, I didn't get to hurt much in New Zealand. I did get to take in some natural, uh, some of the nature. It's beautiful, highly invasive. Most of the species living in New Zealand don't belong there. It's a really unusual place in that, in that regard. I've traveled to Costa Rica, and I've traveled to Panama uh, for herping trips. I've traveled to Arizona. Uh, and in fact, you might actually detect my voice just goes down a little bit when I say Arizona. 
there, there's something about Arizona. There's something about the Chiricahuas that captured my heart as my favorite place on the planet. Well, I've run a, I've run into you out there, you and Paul Pratt. That's right. We did some road cruising together on a few nights. A few other yeah, people. That was, yeah. that was one of the North American Field Herping Association meetings. And we, uh, we came down from Canada to add the biggest, bestest part of North America. And, uh, and that was a wonderful trip. I remember driving at astronomical speeds, you looking for snakes and finding absolutely everything there is to find. My goodness, that's a fantastic place. Yeah, and uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Paul, um, who's just an all-around naturalist. Paul. And I say that with a capital N. But we're out there, and we're, I think we, we had stopped for a snake or something. And, and, and Paul, looking up at, the, of course, the gorgeous night sky out there, Paul basically said, well, you see these, these three stars here? Let me follow that. Now go over to the one on the right. Okay, now you see that little fuzzy patch over there. That's a that's a different galaxy, and and so I, I had no idea you could actually see other galaxies with the naked eye. Okay. And the, the fact that uh, he could actually look up in the sky, find his bearings, and locate a uh, another galaxy, and then point it out to me, it was just like, oh, <laughs> it, it was like. Uh, it was astounding to me that that somebody could hold that kind of knot because I can't I can't do that or I couldn't do that with the night sky for sure and uh, so it was a big gift to me it's like holy cow and I'll never forget I'll that I'll tell you what so Paul if you're listening thanks you thank you I really appreciate that moment absolutely I I can't speak highly enough of Paul Pratt the way I introduced Paul to my friends uh, I've been fortunate enough to know him to the point where I consider him to be family now and. Um, I introduced him to friends as the best naturalist I've ever met. And when you consider that I know probably a thousand naturalists of various types, that's that's a statement. Um, Paul's the most complete naturalist I know. He's well-versed in insects. He's well-versed in plants and trees. He's well-versed in birds and reptiles and mammals. He's seen over 5,000 species of birds in the world. He's seen all of the large cats in the world. He's led birding trips in Australia and Africa. He's an amazing naturalist of all capacity. He's the gentlest teacher of that information. And on top of it all, he's the president of the local astronomy club. So he even knows nature up there, as you alluded alluded to. And and of course, again, with the gentle teaching. He just shows you stuff and you're blown away. I can't speak highly enough of him. And I hope to hear him one day on your so much pingo. Ooh, that would be it fun. Would be. Yeah. Okay. So where, where else do you want to go um, around the world? What's, what looks good to you? You have a, something, you know, if you say Peru, I'm just going to say, this is what happens on every show, but uh, uh, where would you like to go? To be honest, there's only one spot that comes to mind when you ask me that question, Mike, and it'll shock you that I'm staying in Canada. I mean, there's there's not a whole lot of diversity when you look at some place like you know the tropics or or even like Snake Road with with a a, a large number of species that you can find. Uh, Canada doesn't offer a huge amount of diversity, but what we've got is pretty freaking amazing, and uh, and I have. 
had the pleasure of finding most of our herbs. In fact, I've had some extraordinarily pleasure, extraordinary pleasures with Ontario herbs. That that goes without saying. Doing a lot of research in our province, but there's a herb that lives out in British Columbia, and I got to to experience some of British Columbia's reptiles and amphibians in 2019 as we went out to Cam uh, Loops to dis- to have our conference, our annual Canadian Herpetological Society conference. And of course, with the conference comes a field trip. So I got to spend some time with amazing scientists and local naturalists checking out some of British Columbia's amphibians and reptiles. And unfortunately, uh, just like you are, are, are pain, painfully awaiting your first glimpse at a twin spot rattlesnake, I am painfully awaiting my first glimpse at a Canadian rubber boa. Oh, That would be my number one destination. Okay. Canada. <laughs> yeah. Go figure. Nice. I know people do it. I know people find them. Oh, I, I know swans. Um, I know people that research them. All I've got to do yeah. is fly out at a decent time of year and that, or drive out at a decent time of year and that'll happen. Yeah. Well, I hope, I hope you make that happen at some point. Um, they're pretty cool little snakes. They are amazing little snakes. And again, captives, I kept a, a decent number of little rubber boas for a large number of years. I never had success coasting them to breed. I, I wish that it happened, but uh, I never did. But I love them. They are amazing little snakes. What's uh, totally amazing is that there's a researcher in the northwestern part of the United States that documented an individual that was a known-age wild individual of 50-plus years of age. That's that pretty incredible. fantastic. So a big shout-out to rubber boas. And, yeah, if I had one, one <laughs> destination in mind, it would be to one of those spots, which I'll, which I'll mention to you off, Mike. I would never give out a, a, a sensitive <laughs> spot like that on, on the air. Right. Yeah. Well, I certainly wish you well with that uh, project in the future. Uh, obviously, uh, you can travel within your country and and maybe someday you can make that happen. But uh, but I think we're almost at the two hour mark, buddy. And uh, it seems like this is just another chunk of a, a decades long conversation. And um, I think we've given the folks uh, a, a nice road cruising episode here. <laughs> Uh, so, um, anything else you want to talk about before we shut her down? Honestly, I, I, I think because I'm looking at you, Mike, I'd like, I'd like to give a shout out to, to everybody that comes to snake road at that campfire, all the friends and family. I hope I don't tear up. That's how much I love you guys. Oh, it was too late. I teared up. (laughs) Well, I, I tell you what, it, 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 that's a it, it is special and people have never been there here is talking about it and may not understand this but uh you know uh, bonds are forged you know and lifelong friendships made there and it's it's uh, I can't uh, if if you've never met me you know, come down there in in October and you have a good chance of of doing so and you probably run into Steve at some point I don't know about this year but maybe we'll see but uh you know it's just a, a unique experience and uh, of course we can't we talk about it a lot, but it, it means a lot to us. And, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's fitting that you and I first met down there and became friends. So, so I always look forward to, and I don't think I've missed you in, in a number of years. I've seen you probably every year for something like a decade or something. I haven't missed there. a year since 08. 
And I'm, I'm, I, even though the Canadian-U.S. border is still closed, I'm actually currently hoping to make it to Snake Road this year. I, 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 I don't know why I'm hoping that, but I am. If I do, <laughs> everybody wants normalcy. I, I guess what we're striving for is a little bit of normalcy. I've been to Snake Road every year since 2008. As I said earlier, I can't imagine a better place to spend Thanksgiving. I won't make it to Thanksgiving this year. That much I do know because the date of potentially opening the border is already beyond Thanksgiving. That that's that much is in yeah. in the can. But but honestly, it, it's not it's not it, it can't be overstated how magical that experience is. And and to be honest, it's only partially about the wildlife. It, it's 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 almost more about the kindred spirits, the relationships, the feeling that you get listening to this podcast. I, I can't, I can't thank you <laughs> enough for this podcast because it, it's just a little taste of what you get when you go, when you sit at that campfire or walk down that road or climb on that bluff. It, it's, it's an absolutely incredible experience. I can't wait to get back. Well, I can't wait for you to come back. Oh, and you know what? I we know we didn't talk about. I've actually been up to your neck of the woods once. Uh, I went up there a couple uh, years ago in May, maybe three or four years now in May with uh, uh, Peter Berg, good friend Peter Berg from Chicago. We drove up and uh, helped you guys out with a herb survey. And I won't say exactly where, but it was on this island. And uh, I tell you what, we had a great time. We hung out with you and uh, some of the other people, other movers and shakers up there who do the herp survey work up there and uh and some other friends that i've met through you and we just had the best time up there even uh, even though we had a, a a howling storm that came through and kept us in a tent for an entire day but uh it was so much fun to go up there and see massasaugas and spotted turtles and uh hog noses big chunky hog noses and we just had a really good time and uh so uh, I look forward to maybe coming up there again sometime and uh, hanging out with you guys. So uh, just so it's not all one way, you coming down to us. Oh, uh, there's no, there's no doubt about that. We've got, we've got some of the most incredibly beautiful reptiles in, in Ontario. And as much as we've got tiny sensitive populations and we can't, we literally can't be spouting out, Hey, come look at this wonderful spot to every herper because our our little populations are fragile and very very sensitive, yeah. so we can't be advertising a place like you can Snake Road. Snake Road is incredibly resilient. It's been through a nightmare with that road being created, and people used to have competitions about killing snakes on that road. It, it's completely changed with the closure and the conservation effort and everything that's gone on. It's a wonderful story. Here, we don't have the same story. We've got n nothing but decline in our nature and, and, and shrinkage in our nature. And so we can't be taking in on all visitors that want to right. come on right. mass and go look for Massasaugus. But the thing is, those few rare opportunities, like you say, where we get to invite cherished family members such as yourself out to a bona fide study where we're going to do some genuine conservation surveys, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to have you and Pete up because honestly, that was, while there was that day of sideways rain where the, where the nylon of the tent was literally faceted to our face, the, the, yeah, the day yeah. before and the day after were fantastic. And 
Uh, sure I remember a particularly teary-eyed Pete looking at a Blanding's turtle and uh, a very elated Mike looking at a spotted turtle and the chunky Massasaugas and chunky hognose snakes put stupid grins on both your faces. And, and, and it's <laughs> worth every minute of that, no matter how far you drive yeah. or fly to get to some place. When you're experiencing that yeah. with dear friends, that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and, and talking to me and I um, appreciate it. And I look forward to the next time we get to have a chat, wherever the heck that is, whenever the heck that is, I always look forward to it. So I know it'll be a good time involved. So, you know, there'll be a good time involved. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to end this almost right at the two hour mark. So I, I really appreciate you just hanging around and just having a nice chat about, about things. And, uh, uh, you know, at some point down the road, we'll have an occasion to chat again. I'm Buddy, sure. This has been an absolute pleasure from start to finish. When when I heard that you might have me on as a guest, I was blown away, and I, I was excited like a kid at Christmas <laughs> from that from that moment until I got on the mic. And and of course, you made me feel at home the second I saw your face on the computer. Thank goodness for that. I can actually see your your shining, smiling face and. Uh, and, <laughs> and you can see my all my t-shirts I'm behind me too. Cardinal shout out for sure. Yeah, yeah, and then right over there is the Texas Turtles black Texas Turtles t-shirt that I got right recently on. from the, that project. So, uh, which I haven't actually worn yet, but um, I'm ready to take it out and show that one off. So, yeah, my basement recording studio is you know it it uh, doesn't look like much, but it gets the job done. Well, exactly, so. and I gotta say, um, I, I was woken up uh, by a Facebook post of yours this morning where you celebrated getting your, I believe it was probably a life or black knob map turtle. Oh yeah, the black knob. Yeah, that, that, my goodness, uh, Mike, that's a fantastic looking little turtle. Yeah, I, I have actually seen them before from what I call the wrong side of the river. Oh, yeah. Where you can see him with binoculars and like, oh yeah, yeah, that's Nigranota. Uh, but uh, you know the the light's wrong and it's too far away. Yeah, but this time uh, I had good light and I also have a brand new 100 300 lens and it all just worked out. And I actually saw a number of the those turtles on that particular day. So oh, uh, yay fantastic. me! <laughs> that is a beautiful turtle and a nice yeah. shot you put up this morning. That was fantastic looking turtle. Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate that. And I know, know the folks out there will appreciate uh, that one. It's, it's just not not one you see pictures not. of every day. And, of course, it's one of those things you see in a field guide and you go, oh, man, wouldn't it be cool to see a black no knob sawback? And, and then uh, for, yeah, so I've been drooling over that one for a long time. So, so pretty exciting. Well, anyway, thanks so much again for coming on the show, and um, we'll talk oh, to you again thanks sometime. For having me, it's been an ultimate pleasure. You take care, bud. See, see, we could just keep rolling on for you know who knows how long, but uh, <laughs> we do have other things to do. I gotta go so. to work. <laughs> gotta go catch some snakes. <laughs> well, don't let me All keep right, you from that. All right, thanks again. That's it for episode 20. I want to thank my friend Steve Marks for coming on the show. I really enjoyed our conversation, buddy. And I hope to see you once again next fall, if not sooner. And folks, don't forget your homework assignment. Send me your herp jargon. 
Send me all the cool phrases and words that you and your friends use, and we'll get a show together about that. And as always, thank you all for the comments and suggestions and just overall support for the show. I really appreciate it, and it just keeps me going, makes this, keeps this enjoyable for me. Just a couple more things before I go. You can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at SoMuchPingle.com. And you can join the So Much Pingle Facebook group. You can also email me directly at SoMuchPingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And in the meantime, please take really good care of yourselves. And don't forget to hurt better. 